This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We live in the Laodicean church age, as you all know, that we've talked about time and time and time again, which means that the prevailing attitude of the church, the prevailing attitude of us, the prevailing attitude of almost everybody who's on social media is my opinion counts the way I want things to be is the way they should be, and there's nothing more important in life than me. And even though we try to live sanctified lives and we try to live lives that are surrendered to the Lord, that's in our DNA. It's just who we are. And it it has a tendency of clouding every decision that we make. I was thinking about church and I was thinking about what we do in church. I was listening especially to a lot of contemporary Christian music. And again, I've shared this with you before. Old hymns talk about the glories of Christ. New Christian songs talk about what he does for us. You know, this is how he applies his love to me. This is how much loving him means to me. This is the good things I get from him. And it's almost that we don't even notice it anymore, that the focus is off of him, of being who he is, and now the focus is on us, who are the recipients of his benefits. And again, it's 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 a subtle thing, but it happens everywhere. I was watching um I was watching a movie about a really badly done movie, had an incredibly good message, uh, and it was about what would happen if the Apostle Paul showed up today. And so it you know, begins with all of a sudden he's in prison and they're getting ready to behead him, and as soon as the sword comes down, he wakes up on the side of the road in our time today. And, and it was he comes to church services like we have, and in the church service the pastor gives his gospel presentation, and then he does this. He goes, um, well, let's just bow your heads. Nobody looking around. Nobody, everybody's eyes closed. And if you would like to make Jesus your Lord today, just slowly slip your hand up. Oh, I see that hand out there. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. We all do that. You know, and we don't want anybody to be embarrassed. We want to make it really easy for you to make a commitment to Christ on the stealth. And when it was all over, the pastor felt great because several people committed their life to Christ. And the guy that was the Apostle Paul goes, do you always make them close their eyes and raise their hand? Well, yeah, it just works better that way. Well, in our church, 2,000 years ago, when someone got saved, it was a celebration. When someone got saved, it was a bold, I'm now following Christ because it cost us something. It cost us our job, our relationship with our family sometimes if, if we were Jewish. And I mean, we were confessing him. And I started thinking about the difference between what we do, kind of a program, kind of a service, kind of something that we come and and don't really expect people to participate that much other than singing or saying amen or something of that nature, versus what it was like to follow Christ biblically. I mean, what it was like back then. What does it look like in the New Testament? And so I'm not going to take a lot of time with this. But I want to begin in Matthew chapter 4, and I want you to look at this summary of what it was like if you decided to follow Christ back then. 
You know, chapter 4 begins with uh, Satan tempting Jesus, and in verse number 12, he begins his ministry, and it talks about, verse number 17, that the message he's proclaiming is pretty much the same message John the Baptist is proclaiming. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, if you would just bow your head and close your eyes and just raise your hand and make some sort of cognitive mental decision that after I'm gone, that your life will be different, we'll be okay. Here's a box of tithing envelopes and here's a church schedule and we'll sign you up for Sunday school and that's all that's involved. He said, follow me. Well, what does that mean? To follow you, they're probably thinking, and I will make you fishers of men. Whatever you're doing, whatever you committed your life to, I'm going to change the focus of that now to be eternal. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. First convert left everything. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John with his brother, and a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, without even thinking... They left their boats and their nets, and they followed him. Talks about the rest of this chapter, just everybody was coming, and he was healing all those people. It was kind of a great thing. Chapter 5 through 7, of course, Jesus lays out for us what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. It's not how you think. And he goes over chapter after chapter after chapter of breaking down everything they put their faith in. You believe in the law. I'm telling you that, the, that I have come and I fulfill the law. And the law dealt with just overt behavior. So you can be a really nice, lost, moral person. But I'm telling you, we're taking it inwardly. Don't commit adultery, a physical act. I'm saying don't lust. And then we get to chapter 6, verse number 19. And he begins hitting them where it really hurts. Especially for us today as Americans and entrepreneurs and, and people who live in the richest country ever. Verse number 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. But that's what I spend most of my life doing. We work really hard so we can lay up a bunch of money so we can reach a certain age so we don't have to work anymore and we can make as much money by not working as we did while we were working so we can spend our retirement years doing the stuff that we want to do, taking trips and going on cruises and having just a wonderful time. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So where do I lay up my treasures? I work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, and the goal, of course, is to make more money than I actually spend so that I can invest it and pay off debts. And So what should I spend my life doing? Verse 20, But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor where thieves break in and steal. Why? For where your treasure is, where you spend your time, where your affections are, there your heart will be also. And then he anticipates our concern. Well, wait a second. Then that means I'm not going to be able to have all the stuff that I want. I'm not going to be able to, to do better than the Joneses. I'm not going to be able to drive a better car than my neighbor. I mean, I'm not going to be able to live the American dream. So what do I do? I'm, I'm worried about that. Verse number 24, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth, riches, mammon. 
cannot do it. Therefore, since you can't do it, he goes on to say, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to live. God takes care of all his creations, and he takes care of you too. The hairs on your head are numbered. He feeds the sparrows. The, the Solomon is not arrayed like the lilies of the field. Why do you even worry about anything? So what do we do? You lay up treasures in heaven. Verse 31, therefore do not say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the lost people seek, the Gentiles. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you based on faith. But the world says one thing, and my flesh says one thing, and you're saying another. What am I supposed to do? Chapter 7, verse 15. Remember, we're following Jesus now on his terms. Our verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. Literally, if you look at a literal translation of this in the Greek, it's like a turnstile. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it meaning they're searching for that narrow way. Beware of false prophets, verse 15 and following. It's not by your verbal profession that people will know that you belong to him. It'll be about a changed life, a sanctified life, the fruit that you bear. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, will enter the kingdom of the heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. In the Laodicean church age in which we live pretty much my whole life, we, we're more interested in getting people to make professions than we are talking about truly changed lives. So Jesus goes out and he calls some disciples and they leave everything. He lays out this incredible sermon uh, that is teaching of what the kingdom is like for three chapters. Chapter 8 rolls around and now Jesus says, let me show you how we're going to put all this into practice. First thing, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, he meets a leper, the worst possible person to run into. Someone who's unclean, someone who's disgusting, someone who oozes bodily fluids, someone nobody wanted to be around. And Jesus not only healed him, but he also touched him in the process. Come on, followers of Christ. You guys with me, Peter? You with me, uh, James and John? Here's how it's done. We get our hands dirty, healing a leper, and then he takes zero credit for it. Don't tell anyone what I have done. Exactly the opposite of how we are today. If I do something like touch a leper, you better believe we want everybody else to know about it. It makes us kind of special, not Christ. And if it wasn't a physical something disgusting physical, from chapter 5, or verse number 5, all the way to verse number 13, he heals somebody that is hated, someone who's despised. He starts out with someone who's unclean, and then he, physically then he deals with someone who's unclean because he's a Roman, and he heals this person's servant. And again, he takes no credit. And then in chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, and then there's a private healing. 
So Jesus had come into Peter's house. He saw his mother lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. Verse number 16. There's a huge public healing that takes place. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, fulfilling a prophecy and never took credit. Never wanted people to, to raise him up a platform. Never wanted him to be able to speak at all the conferences. He didn't care about that. Matter of fact, in verse 18, he retreats with his disciples. Because he doesn't really, really want to be praised by the crowd because of what he did. So his disciples are on a boat with him. And all of a sudden, the wind picks up, and they start getting afraid. And so Jesus stands up next, and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and then turns right around and rebukes the disciples by saying, look at what I have done in front of you for the first 18 verses of this chapter, and you still doubt? Why are you fearful, verse 26, you of little faith? Verse number 28, the end of the chapter, there's these two demon-possessed guys out in the Gadarenes, and they're just the, the worst people ever, and people are afraid of them, and Jesus comes and casts out this boatload of demons into the, into the swine, and, and they want to follow him, and he says, no, don't tell anyone about this. You go back home and tell people how much Christ has done for you. By the time we get to chapter 9, he begins to change his focus. It's not just on the healing, but I want you to understand the greater healing that takes place. There was a man who was paralyzed, and when Jesus sees him being paralyzed, he says, your sins are forgiven. And, and when they confront him on that, only God can forgive sins, he says, well, what is easier, to say something verbal like your sins are forgiven, or rise, well, take up your mat, and walk, and so that you will know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he says to the man who was paralyzed, Arise and go. And by the time we get to verse 9, and I'll stop with this one. By the time we get to verse 9, we're calling another disciple. And do you know what the requirement was for discipleship was? Everything. Everything. Jesus passed on from there and saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. I shared with you this years ago that there were two types of tax collectors. Back then, there was one who basically would own the tax collecting franchise and he would hire people to sit in the booths and collect the taxes, kind of isolating himself from the hatred of his countrymen. And then there was one who was so stingy, so miserly and so greedy that he wouldn't hire somebody to do the dirty work. He himself would do the dirty work. And that's exactly what Matthew was doing. And so when he left, he lost it all. Everything, total source of income. And it's not like anybody's going to give Matthew a job because every Jew in town despised him and hated him for what he did. They were rejoicing at the fact that he had a bad turn of events. So I'm reading this, and I'm just going through a couple chapters in Matthew, and I won't even deal with the early church, <coughs> and I'm trying to compare it to what it looks like today when we talk about following Jesus. If I asked you, how many people in here are followers of Christ? We would all raise our hands. And then if I said, what does that mean to be a follower of Christ? 
What does that mean tomorrow morning when you wake up? Many of us would say, well, it means that I believe in him, that he's forgiven my sins, that he's preparing a place in heaven for me, and it's all eternal. It's all out there. What does it mean in your relationship with your children? What does it mean with your relationship with your spouse? What does it mean being light in a dark world? What does it literally mean when it comes to surrendering the you part of you for him to follow Christ? This is the classic verse on that I can find on what it means to surrender your life to him, to follow him completely. It's in Matthew chapter 16, and here's what it says. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, and this is from Matthew, if anyone desires to come after me, doesn't mean this is for everyone, but if anyone desires to come after me, here's what he must do. Let him deny himself implied, let him take up his cross. Let him follow me. Why? For whoever desires not to follow me, but to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, forsakes his life, for my sake will find it. And then he gives a rationalization for this next. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses the one thing that is of most importance, which is his soul. Or what will a man gain in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. This is the passage that you refer to a lot when you're talking about absolute total surrender to the Lord. But this is only told from Matthew's perspective. This statement of Christ is found in the Synoptic Gospels. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And everyone adds just a little nuance to it. And it's only when you put those all together do you get the totality of what Christ is saying here. And so that's what we've done. We've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke laying out for us exactly what this verse says. Now watch this carefully. Then Jesus... Mark says he called the people to himself, and Luke says and said to them all. So you can't sit back and say, well, this was just meant for the disciples, which Matthew indicates if you just looked at his passage. It's not. It's meant for every single one. You had the disciples he had called. You had the crowds that were there. You had the entourage. It's a statement made to every single one of us. Then Jesus called the people to himself and said to them all, Mark says, and the disciples also, and then we go back to the Matthew text, and here's what he says. If anyone, any of you, all the people out there, it's a, it's a broad spreading of this promise. If any one of you desires to come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, like what, like one time? Like a commitment we make during a revival service 14 years ago and we're covered? No, Luke adds the phrase daily. It's a daily surrendering of yourself to him. Let him take up his cross. In our verbiage, we would say, let him take up his electric chair. Let him take up his means of execution and follow me. Why? For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, Mark adds, and the gospels will find it. Rationale. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world 
and loses his own soul, Luke adds, and is himself destroyed or lost. Matthew again, oh, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark adds the words of Christ. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, ashamed. Of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes. Luke says in his own glory, and Matthew in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. That's sobering, is it not? It's a call to those who are interested in responding. Interested in responding. We're all, we're all on this continuum. You know, I ask people, you know, where are you at spiritually on a scale from one to ten? On your scale of one to ten, ten being the closest you've ever been to the Lord, one being the furthest you've ever been away from him. Where are you right now in this continuum? How close are you to where you at one time were? Or are you a 10 now? I'm closer than I've ever been to the Lord. I'm, I'm desiring to follow him and doing what's necessary. It's a, it's a way that we can kind of measure our spiritual fervency. And most of us, probably in here, if I started with Karen and went this way, most of us would be less than a 10. We don't want to be a 9 because people look at expectations on us. An 8 is kind of okay, but kind of errs on the side of spirituality. 7 feels more comfortable. Some people are 5. We don't want to be less than that. Then people look at us funny. And so it's kind of the way it is. But the reality, where are we on this? And it's all based on desire. Whatever you desire, it means you desire it more than something else that is keeping you from getting what you desire. If you're, if you're a, a father and you have three kids at home or five kids at home or however many kids at home and you're working 80 hours a week, but you have a desire to train for a new profession. You know, I'm a plumber. And work is good and work is busy. And when I come home, I'm absolutely exhausted. But what I really want to be, what I really want to do with my life is, you know, I want to, I want to be an electrician. I'd rather deal with wires than deal, you know, digging out pipes and stuff. But in order to do that, I have to go to school. I have to take night school. I have to study, but I'm so tired when I get home. And so is my desire for something new greater than my desire to satisfy my own needs? Or do I just buck up and work real hard and achieve my goal? In every area of life, we admire people against impossible odds who work really hard, focus on their desire, and accomplish something. Except when it comes spiritually. Spiritually, for some reason, it's okay just to be satisfied where we are. Because that's lukewarm. That's the prevailing attitude, the prevailing DNA of our church culture right now. That we're not hot. I don't have a desire for fervency for him because if I do, it costs me something every single time. And I don't want to be like I used to be way down there in the bars and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'm just kind of okay in the sevens or the sixes or the fives or the lukewarms. But the only way you and I are going to catch something that'll change our lives is we have a desire greater than our apathy. Look what this verse says. Then Jesus called all the people to himself, which is all of us, and said to them all, 
with his disciples if, if, it's a promise, if you do this, or if you desire this, I want to tell you exactly how to accomplish it. If this is the end goal that you want, this is what you must do. We do this in school. We go to college or high I don't remember, even remember high school. We go to college and they hand us a, a syllabus and they say, this is what's expected of you. If you give a report, if you do well on these tests, if you score this amount, then you will get credit for the, uh, for the class based on what your grade is. We, we do that all the time. And Jesus is doing the same thing. If. Well, if what? Well, first, who is the if for? If anyone, anyone, not just the pastor, not just the guy that has it all together, not to, not, not just the person that you seem would think is the most likely to succeed spiritually. If anyone, if every single person in here, if with no respect to a person's, if anyone, without any special qualifications, if anyone has desire. That's what it is. To be able to commit yourself to Christ, to be able to, to experience him like you never had before, to live the kind of life that you always dreamed possible and maybe, maybe had glimpses of it, but to be able to live that kind of life on an ongoing basis, day in and day out, week in and week out, to have confidence in your prayer life, to be able to bear spiritual fruit, to, to be the kind of Christian that you always, when you first got saved, thought you would be. If anyone desires to come after me. Now, next week, we'll talk about what it means to come after Christ and what it means to deny yourself and all of that. Very practical uh, looking at this when we're talking about surrendering ourselves to him. But today, I just want to focus on that one word, desire. Because we find it all through the passages. I mean, it's like 240-something times we find it in the New Testament. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Why? For whoever desires. It's, it's what we want. What do we really want? Do we really want to present ourselves to Christ as a living sacrifice or not? It's, it's up to us. If we desire this, Christ tells us how to do it. If we don't desire this, then our problems are much greater than that. I want to just show you a couple places in Scripture how this is used. First, the word is simple. The word means to will, to wish, to desire, but it doesn't mean just sitting around and dreaming. It means to desire, but it implies active volition, active purpose, active will. In other words, it's not just, what would you like to do? Oh, I would like to be a, I desire to be a professional basketball player but you've never even picked up a basketball. I know, but that's just what my desire is. No, that's a dream and a wish and a fantasy. When this talks about desire, man, I have a desire to to run a marathon. And so every day I'm getting up and I'm trying to run a little bit farther than I did yesterday, and I'm trying to train my body to be able to accomplish my goal. I've got active will, active volition. I have a purpose behind this. This is what the word means. If anyone desires and is willing to act on that desire to follow me, this is what is required. And so as I was studying this and I was looking in this, the Lord was asking me the questions I'm asking you. 
What do you desire, Steve, regarding your life in Christ? Do you desire it to be just like it is? I don't. I don't. I mean, you know there's something greater than this. You know there's something better than this. You know that there's, there's, we've had glimpses of what it's like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and used by him. Is it really possible to live a life of victory over sin? Is it really possible to be able to have a, a fervency that we desire greater than we desire our own desires and our own wants? And, and this is how I feel. Is it even possible? And if so, what are you willing to sacrifice if necessary to have that desire fulfilled? A man who decide, decides that he wants to go back to college and get a, uh, an advanced degree when he's already working, supporting a family loaded down with debt, sacrifices something for the sake of his family. Someone who decides they want to run a marathon gets up early. I remember the old Rocky movies when he decided to fight Apollo Creed. He drank all the eggs that were raw, and he got up and walked with his dog, Butkus, or, or ran. And I mean, it was I don't want to do that. Who wants to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and do that? A, a guy who desires for that change takes desire and puts action to it. So spiritually, what are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to see our desires fulfilled? And if we do have a desire, what are we doing now? to move from where we are to have our relationship with Christ come to fruition. Are we getting up and reading our Bible? Well, sometimes, but mostly not, because I have a desire to go to work. I have a desire to answer those emails. I have a desire to please my boss. I have a desire to sleep in an extra half hour more than I have a desire for him. Then nothing will happen. Are we looking for opportunities to share our faith with? Well, no, then... <laughs> It's not going to happen. And we just limp on in lukewarmness, which, listen to me, our church culture says is okay. And Jesus said it nauseated him so bad he wanted to vomit out of his mouth. Remember? We see it as okay. He doesn't. And the change between where we are and where we want to be with the Lord first begins with desire. Have to have that desire. Matthew 11. As in the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Jesus is communicating to them a truth they didn't want to hear about John the Baptist. And if you are willing, that's that word, if you have a desire and you're willing to act on that desire to receive it, if you're willing or if you're closed ears and you're not even interested, you'll get nothing out of this. But if you're willing to receive it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. This is not for everybody. For he that has ears to hear, let him hear. So we're sitting in this group, and we all have this certain opinion about John the Baptist, and Jesus stands up and says, not everybody will accept my message. But if you're willing, if you are willing to receive what I'm about to say, I'm not willing. It goes against my sincerely held conviction. I just don't believe that's true. He offended me when he called me a brood of vipers. Whatever. If you're willing to receive it, Jesus says, I will reveal to you truth that is meant for everyone, but only received by those who have a desire for it. See the difference? 
Matthew 19. Now behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, you remember the story of the rich young ruler, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good, that is, except God. But if you desire to enter life, if you desire to have an abundant life, if you desire to be pleasing to the Lord, then keep the commandments. Not everyone has that desire. You've come to me and asked me how you could have eternal life, what good things you can do. So I'm assuming you have a desire. And if you have that desire, I'm telling you, then just keep the commandments. Well, which ones? And then Jesus lays out all the commandments that are horizontal, which are actually easier to keep. It's easier for me not to lie than it is to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. True? So he lays out all the horizontal ones. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I got those. Young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth. So what do I still lack? All right, we'll cut to the chase. Jesus said to him, if you have a desire, if you want to be perfect or complete or like me, then you need to get rid of the things that are idols in your life, just like all the disciples did, and follow me. Go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures which you can't even imagine, treasures in heaven, and come after that and follow me. But the young man heard, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He said, you know what? I'm not willing. I don't have a desire to follow you that much because I want to hold on to what I got because I worked real hard for it or my dad worked real hard for it or it's my inheritance. It's my source of confidence. It's not for everybody. It's all based on a desire. You will either have that desire or you won't. And if you have that desire, then you're going to find that there's the powers of darkness working against you to keep you locked into the Laodicean church age like we are, if you don't have that desire, then nothing really is going to change. Life will kind of rock on the way it is, probably won't get all that much better, make it worse. Matthew 20, just a couple of these and we'll quit. Yet it shall not be so among you. There was a debate going on about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so obviously they had a desire to, to be, have one up and ship on each other. So he said, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. You want to be, you want to be served or be a servant? He says, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Because that's what I did, Jesus said. For the justice of the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's not just in the Gospels. Paul tells Timothy what the first desire is to be a pastor, what the first requirement is to be a pastor. Well, it's a, it's a man of one wife. Well, that's, that's one of the requirements. It's a man that has his kids under subjection. Well, that's one of the requirements. But what's the first one? A desire, a desire. This is the faithful saying. If a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good thing or overseer. And then it goes on to talk about what those other requirements are. It begins with a desire. And if I want to be a pastor, I feel God calling me to be a pastor. What does that mean? It means I got to go to school and study in addition to all the other stuff I'm doing. Right, Nick? 
eats up my weekends, eats up the time I could be spending with my family, eats up the stuff that I want to do, but I can't. I have to pay for this stuff. I've, I've got to study. I've got deadlines, but I have a desire for that, and the desire leads me to, to work and act of volition for the end goal. Well, how about if we just don't want to be a pastor and we just want to live godly in Christ? Okay. If you have that desire, the promise is all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus, will suffer persecution. We're approaching the end of 2019, and we're heading into 2020. Everybody makes New Year's resolutions. Me too. I'll join Planet Fitness and go twice. You know Why? Because I don't have a desire for that. If I had a desire for that, I would. And I see some people in there that do some remarkable things, and you know, I have a desire to do this, a desire to do that. We're not talking about the stuff that is transitory. We're talking about our desire to be godly in Christ, our desire to have a fervent relationship with him, our desire to bear spiritual fruit unlike anything we had before, a desire to have the kind of Christian life that is so dynamic that you just can't wait to tell other people about this relationship that you have with Christ, a desire that will cost you something. It will cost you your relationship with your friends. It may cost you the relationship with your family. Because Jesus says, you know, when I came into the world, I didn't come to bring unity. I came to bring a sword. And a man's enemies may be enemies of his own household. Do you have a desire for that? Lord, I have a desire just for you, come what may. Then who knows how this turns out. May cost you your job. May may cost you the things that, that we hold on to. Or maybe it won't. But we have to be willing To have that desire, everything about surrendering your life to Christ hinges on desire. So I'm asking you this today because next Sunday we're going to have time to put all this in practice as we end the year with the Lord's Supper. So what is your desire regarding Christ? Honestly, if I, again, started with Karen and went this way, we'd all probably say, I want to have a better relationship with him. I want to, to lead people to the Lord in 2020 that I didn't in 2019. I want a better prayer life. I want to be able to study his word more. I want to do all these kind of things. I have a desire, but is it a wish or a fancy or is it a desire that, that implies active will and volition and purpose and sacrifice in order to make that happen? If I want that kind of relationship, am I willing to give up my boyfriend or my girlfriend if God says this is wrong? Am I willing to, to have my income be downgraded because maybe God has, has told me I need to give more of my money away? I mean, if God becomes Lord over everything in my life, that means that I'm Lord of less things in my life. And if my number one person I'm most concerned about is me, then it sounds like the me side of that will suffer. But the Christ side of that will soar. Am I willing to count the cost? Am I willing to make the sacrifices? Am I willing to to do what God wants to do no matter what? Am I willing to pay the price? Because there is a price. There's a price for the person who who decides to go to school and change careers. There's a price for the guy that gets up every morning to run the marathon. There's a price for someone who decides, you know, this this year I'm going to really get healthy, so I'm only going to eat good food. There's a, there's a price to be paid for every decision that we make. And what happens is that when it's never presented before us, 
we kind of just rock on the way it is. We're kind of satisfied with not being really hot for him, but, oh, we don't want to be too cold for him, so we're kind of in the middle. And we take our acceptance not from God looking at us saying, I wish you were hotter, but everybody else saying, you're okay. You're lukewarm just like the church is lukewarm, just like everybody else is lukewarm. You're okay. Or do we say, you know, Lord, I need this desire. I, 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 I'm asking you to give me this desire to pay whatever price is necessary. Well, like the price that you're paying now? What does it cost you right now to be a Christian? If we are light in darkness, the darkness tries to stamp out the light. If we're living a godly life in Christ, we're going to face persecution. If we're not... If the Satan is not bothering us, and if we're not suffering persecution because of our faith, based on what the promises say, it's a scary place to be. That we're just limping along, kind of okay. I don't want to be that way anymore. And if we make a commitment, if you make a commitment, and I make a commitment, life will be radically different in 2020 than it is now. It may be physically, temporally worse. That's how it was with the disciples of Jesus. But spiritually, which where it really matters, we will soar. Absolutely soar. So, here's what I'm asking you to do. Next week, we're going to be celebrating communion. And as part of communion, I am simply going to be asking you this week to prepare yourself to surrender your life to him. We're going to spend some of the morning part together just thanking him and praising him for some of the things he's done for us in 2019. And then we're going to hopefully honor him by, and again, it's an individual thing. It's not a church thing. I can't do this for you and you can't do it for me. I can't even, I can't do it for Karen and she can't do it for me. We make a commitment, a desire. Lord, I do have a desire. I, I do more than anything. And then begin the process of learning what it means like to deny ourselves. And I'll be talking about this for the next couple of weeks, learning what it means to, what does it really mean to pick up your cross? And we'll look at maybe a dozen different scenarios that we all face during the day, how we would normally do it, what seems reasonable by this world's standards, and what Jesus says we, we should do. And then slowly move on as we try to learn what it means to be totally sold out to him. The Christian church has a tendency of um, jumping on fads. You know, there's the fish symbol uh, that we put on our cars. The history of the fish symbol was that Christians could get together and not be betrayed by satanic plants within the church. What they would do is, if I'm talking to someone and they claim to be a Christian, then I would take my staff and I would just draw half of the fish symbol in the sand. And if they completed that, then I would know that, that we were one together. I mean, that, that's how that originated. But we do is we take away the true meaning of that and just, you know, make it a, make it a, a I don't know, something on our car or something we wear, wear around our neck and it, it loses its power. At the end of the last century, uh, there was a man named Robert Shelton who wrote a book called In His Steps. Did you ever read it? And it was a book where uh, he's pastoring a church, a congregational church, and I mean, everything was going great, and, and the situation happened 
where he had to really look at his Christianity, not from just the church setting, but Christianity from what Jesus would do. And he made a commitment and asked his whole congregation to make a commitment that for one year, one year, this is what the book is about, one year, that before they did anything, anything, they would simply ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation, and then obey it? It's really easy to know what he's going to do, what he would do. It's really hard to obey it. And of a kind of a huge church he had, he had a small group of people that actually made that commitment. And the rest of the book just tells stories about what their life was about. Well, about in the 1990s, it became really popular, and everybody had these little wristbands that said, what would Jesus do? And, you know, came kind of like the purity rings and all the kind of stuff, the fads that the Christians kind of get involved with. And, and then pretty much it kind of faded out of vogue. And But... Uh, I bought a bunch of those this week, and um, next Sunday, as we have the Lord's Supper, uh, including I'm have everybody come up and do it on your own, and as we have the bread and the wine, if you choose to commit yourself to him, I'm going to ask you to pick up one of those What Would Jesus Do bracelets and put it on and wear it as a testimony that not to you and to everyone else that I have made a commitment that from this day forward, to the best of my ability, I have a desire to do whatever Jesus would do in every area of my life. And if it's on your right wrist or your left wrist and everything that you do, you reach your arm out and you see it there and it filters through your mind like an old Jewish phylactery. No adulation if you pick one up. No shame if you don't. This is on you. This is between you and the Lord, just like it's between me and the Lord. But I'm going to ask you this week to spend whatever time is necessary preparing yourself to be able to, to answer him next Sunday as you're having communion to him. What part of my life am I willing to trust and surrender to you? Purpose of the sheet of paper I handed out to you last week. Remember? Anybody go through this? Anybody pray about this and write these down? Is it just, a, just a, something to jog your mind? Or is it like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I remember putting that in my Bible, but I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. We are ending 2019. 2020 stands to be a very turbulent year. We have an election coming up. No matter how this election turns out, I mean, you may find... You may find physical conflict in our nation. You may find persecution of the church increases like it never has before. And we, being a faith prepper, have to do everything we can to prepare ourselves to have the faith to be able to persevere even during dark times. Because it doesn't take much faith to be a Christian today. But it will. And so let's end 2019 on a high point of committing our lives to him. So I'm just asking you, Spend some time with the Lord, whatever time is necessary, and, and be able to answer him, what would Jesus do with your life? Amen? Let me pray.